Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. And we are still in Daniel 7. There's a lot of great stuff in this chapter. Surprisingly. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. And today we're going to be talking about verses 9 to 14. It gives us a picture of a court in session and we see judgment occurring. And I want to know, Colleen, when I was an Adventist, I had uh, maybe two ideas about judgment. One being the investigative judgment mm-hmm. and the other being the great white th- throne judgment at the end. How did you think about judgment and how has that changed for you now that you read and study the Bible? Oh, that's a great question. As an Adventist, I also had, as far as I can remember, only those two ideas of judgment. The investigative judgment, commonly now called the pre-Advent judgment, and the great white throne judgment at the end of time when everybody would figure out if they were saved or lost. Mm-hmm. Everything up until then was probation, pins and needles, I don't know, I don't know if I can know, and a lot of juxtaposition in one's head between am I going to try and be good or am I going to just give it up because I can't be good enough and I won't know till the end anyway. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of how I saw it. But what's so amazing to me now is I'm starting to see that the Bible does describe judgments, but there's more than just those and they're not all about sin and they're not all about me. So <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the biggest surprises is not this passage, but it's the idea that when Jesus died on the cross, He took my judgment against my sin. I did not understand that. I thought He sort of had a representative death. I didn't know exactly what He did. In fact, Nikki, I read just a couple weeks ago an article by an Adventist pastor in Adventist Today where he was talking about the investigative judgment And he said, the blood of Jesus just completely takes care of sin. I don't know how it works, but it says it's true, so I know it must be true. And I'm thinking, you know what? I can read the Bible now and know what the point of his death was. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that as an Adventist, and that was judgment against my sin. If I trust him, I didn't know that. So now, when I read Daniel 7 and I see this passage, which Adventists use as a framework and proof text for the investigative judgment, I just... I just want to react because that's not what this is. No. And this isn't the great white throne either. There's context and the context tells us what this is about. I find it kind of exciting to be learning this and to be really honest, Nikki, I've been really nervous about this passage that we're going to look at today. And I've been praying a lot for weeks that we'd know how to talk about it. And the more texts I compared to this, the more it made sense. I find it really amazing that God gave all this to Daniel, (laughs) and it's not scary. No, it's not, and it is knowable. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It is. It is knowable from other passages in Scripture. It's not a mystery. It's not all revealed, but it's also not a mystery. Mm -hmm. So, what about you? How did you react to this study of judgment, or what did you think as an Adventist? Well, okay, when it came to judgment as an Adventist, it it was very similar to a lot of the concepts that I had been taught in Adventism. They only gave you a few options. So, for example, the commandments. Whenever we read the word commandments in the New Testament, my mind automatically went to the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. And so, the same thing was kind of true of judgment. Whenever I would read about judgment, it was either the last 
judgment mm-hmm. where you find out if you're lost or saved or this investigative judgment that I couldn't possibly understand. Right. I had no idea that there was a Bema seat judgment. Oh, no, I'd never heard of that. And frankly, neither did Ellen White because she told her followers that she would meet them at the great white throne judgment. Oh, my goodness, Nikki, I've been thinking about that lately. Can you imagine if you really understand what the Bible says from a Christian perspective for her to say she'll meet people at the great white throne judgment? Yeah. That means they're all lost. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a scary, frightening, horrifying thing, really. And because I had seen all of the charts related to the investigative judgment, I just determined that I was not capable of learning these things. <laughs> Prophecy wasn't for me. Yeah. I was the least of these. I was. <laughs> it was my job to have faith like a child. I didn't mm-hmm. have to know. Greater minds than mine. On and mm-hmm. on and on. Mm-hmm. And so I just settled in there. And um, we've done Daniel a couple times. We did it at uh, women's Bible study at our previous church. Uh And we did a really quick fly through with the former Adventist Fellowship Conference. It's on YouTube, guys. If you haven't seen it, you have to go watch it. 2016, Gary Enrig teaches. And those have been really exciting. I remember Mm -hmm. just feeling like Daniel's not what I thought it was. But going through this with you and reading it... You know, we study on our own separately, and then mm-hmm. we come together and talk about what we've learned. And and so going through it on my own and seeing connections and finding reliable commentators and and then coming back and talking to you and seeing... We all see the same thing. If we come with the same hermeneutic, that's, that's obviously it. a very important part of it. But we see the same thing. I don't have to go to greater minds than mine because the Bible isn't there to trick me. It's there telling me what it's saying. You know, I love what you said last week, that you started to realize just recently that prophecy wasn't about God hiding information so we could dig and maybe if we were lucky, figure it out. He's not tricking us. No, prophecy is in the Bible to tell us what to expect. And it isn't completely inaccessible. Now, I want to go back to this last thing you said Mm -hmm. about hermeneutic. Mm I think that is super important. And what hermeneutic one uses when one reads prophecy in the Bible actually will kind of determine what path one goes down. There's a couple of two or three different major divides on some of these subjects in eschatology. And really, the biggest thing that makes a difference which path one goes down is the hermeneutic. Mm -hmm. And in reading other commentators and other sources, I'm discovering that it's not just me that thinks that. Other people see it that way as well. So let's review our hermeneutic as we start this scene on judgment. Okay. We use normal categories of grammar, context, and genre so that we read the Bible like we would read any other book. We don't come to a science textbook, for example, and go, This is all a little obscure to me. I think I'll allegorize it. (laughs) If we're looking at the formula for salt, NaCl, well, the Na could be like not applicable, and the Cl could mean clean. And, you know, I think it could mean this. No, we have to use standard definitions. We don't read a science book by allegorizing and making it fit a presupposition. We use the words and their normal meanings, look up in any dictionary, find the normal meanings, and we can understand what the writer is saying, even if we don't completely understand how it will all look in real life. So that's our hermeneutic. 
And scripture interprets scripture. That's a really important rule. And just because I encounter a scripture that I don't understand and doesn't flesh itself out right there, it doesn't mean that that it's not fleshed out in scripture. I just need to go find it. Right. And that's why, just parenthetically, having a good translation with a good set of marginal references, with references to other passages in Scripture that use the same words and the same ideas, and looking them up is so helpful. Because if you can't figure out from the Bible itself how it connects to itself, you're not really going to be able to figure it out by looking to somebody else, because somebody else may have a different way of looking. And what we've learned in doing Daniel and doing our study is that there are a lot of people who use a different hermeneutic when they come to prophecy. Mm -hmm. They definitely allegorize it. They definitely see the words not necessarily meaning the standard meanings. I mean, for example, saints might mean anybody who believes instead of contextually meaning the Jews, if that's the context. That's just an example. Definitions matter, and hermeneutic is everything, but there are people who do more allegorized, symbolic definitions for their words, and they actually come up with something different. Yeah, and, 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 you know, we talk a lot on here about the hermeneutic that we prefer, especially when we're in the New Testament. If if people have walked through Hebrews or Colossians or Ephesians or Galatians with us, we talk a lot about how we approach Scripture. And we take that exact same approach that we use in the New Testament, and we bring it with us into prophecy, understanding that it's a different genre. Right. And so you handle that genre differently, but not with a different hermeneutic. Right. And my discomfort with allegorizing is it seems arbitrary. It seems as if, okay, this is a little confusing, so let's allegorize it. Right. And and it just becomes difficult choosing who, you know, who has the authority to actually say what this means. So for me, I really like to be consistent Genesis to Revelation. Right. And... Uh, Tell us the name of the hermeneutic that we use. We use the historical grammatical hermeneutic. And that has been traditionally the most commonly used hermeneutic among evangelical Christians for centuries. So there are some who will use the historical grammatical hermeneutic for most of the Bible, but they get to certain sections of prophecy and they shift into more allegorical method. And with you, Nikki, that just seems inconsistent, and there's no actual authority to say when you shift. So if we can't use the same hermeneutic all the way through, then I feel like we're going to lose our train of thought. We're approaching this whole section using the same hermeneutic we use when we did Galatians and Ephesians and the first half of Daniel. Why don't we read our passage today, and we'll start talking about it as best as we can using our historical grammatical method. Okay, we are in Daniel 7, verses 9 to 14. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. 
I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Wow. You know, to be really honest, I used to glaze over when I read this passage, and I felt confused by it, even when I tried to understand it. And somehow this week, after studying this and knowing that we had to figure out how this connected to other sections of Scripture, it is so exciting. It's like a new discovery to me. (laughs) And I just want to start out by saying one observation that really helped me, I'm sure many of you already know this, but it was like amazing to me to hear it put into these words. The beasts in the first part of Daniel 7 correspond, as we've already talked about, with the image of the four metals in Daniel 2. So, we see the Babylon, the Medo-Persia, the Greece, and the Rome. And we see the man-centered view in the beautiful image of shining metals. And we see more of a God perspective by looking at the nature of those kingdoms as they're represented by these strange beasts. Here's the thing that was a sort of surprise to me. I had never actually thought about the fact that the rock cut out without hands that strikes the image on the feet and crumbles the entire image at once so it blows into the wind, that rock striking the feet is the same event as these verses we just read. (laughs) And that was new to me. Yeah. This passage we're looking at today is the event of the kingdom of God, that rock without hands, striking the Gentile nations. That rock is going to grow and fill the earth with the kingdom of God. And this is the passage that is more detail about what's kind of inside that rock. So, when we look at nine, what strikes you about the description that Daniel's seeing when he's looking in this vision. What does he see? Well, it, it sounds a lot like the book of Revelation to me. You know, as an Adventist, I read that one a lot. I didn't read Daniel. <laughs> so, we have the Ancient of Days. He's on his throne. His garment was white as snow. His hair, pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. The wheels remind me of other prophecies. Mm-hmm. Ezekiel has a very similar description when he sees the glory of God in Ezekiel 1. It's interesting, too, that, you know, we covered the first part of this chapter last week, and it's as if Daniel is shifting between earth and heaven now. And that's another interesting thing that reminds me a lot of the book of Revelation. That's actually a really important point, I think, because what Daniel is seeing now, and you can see, I kept looking And he sees something different than he saw with the beasts. The beasts are functioning on earth, and now he's going to see what's happening at the same time that little horn is shouting out its boasts. Mm -hmm. He is now seeing what's going on from a heavenly perspective. He's looking into heaven, and he sees the throne room of God. And it was interesting to me just to read um, J. Vernon McGee's commentary on this particular passage. He said, this description in verses 9 and 10, is a description of the same scene that John sees in Revelation 4 and 5. John has a lot more detail, a lot more 
activity, but it's the same scene. It's the throne room of God where myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands are there with him. Do you think when John saw all of that, that he thought of Daniel's descriptions? Well, I wouldn't be surprised. He knew the Old Testament Mm -hmm. and he uses some of the same descriptions like thousands and thousands, myriads and myriads. Mm It's, it's an amazing thing to think about that. And now this Ancient of Days, this is God the Father. Right. I, for some reason, used to think of Jesus as the Ancient of Days. Well, and He is in a sense. Yeah. He is. But in this passage, it's showing the two persons interacting, mm-hmm. the Ancient of Days and the function of the Messiah, who we will read more about in this last half. We go from seeing the thrones set up. And that's an interesting thing right there, that thrones were set up. That's plural. We're not told who sits on the thrones, but it's getting ready for a judgment scene. Thrones are set up, and then we see how the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, I I do think this is an interesting thing, especially since Adventism teaches that God has a body, even Mm -hmm. though it's very subtly taught. Ellen White affirmed that. I heard one commentator say that There are many who say this is the only place in Scripture where God is described as looking like He has a physical form. And if that is true, and I think it likely is, um, this is for a purpose of giving a visual understanding of His glory, His righteousness, His wisdom, and His majesty. It's not because God is literally up there with a physical body, but Daniel was seeing representations that would magnify and emphasize the purity, the holiness, the righteousness of God. And it's interesting that he's represented as being all in white. And the flames and the fire are often representative in Scripture of judgment. Absolutely. So, there's all kinds of judgment imagery in these first verses that we're looking at. Thrones set up, fire coming out of the throne of God, flowing down wheels under his throne, reminiscent of Ezekiel again, fire coming out from before them, thousands upon thousands attending him, myriads upon myriads standing before him. And the court convened. And the court convened. And what happened then? The books were opened. Now, see, this is where Adventists pick it up and say, see, 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 that's the investigative judgment. Jesus opens the books, God opens the books, whoever opens the books, and Jesus starts going through them. (laughs) That's not what this is saying. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But what I thought was really interesting, and this was new for me, Nikki, I looked up some references to other places where these scenes of judgment and fire were related to God. And it was amazing to me that the psalmist actually describes things very similar to this. And I'm looking at these Psalms that I'm going to share a little bit of and looking at this passage in Daniel and realizing the psalmist understood that God is going to judge the earth. It wasn't just metaphor. It wasn't just, you know, superlative language to somehow emphasize that God is sovereign. No, this is real. And even he knew it. So Psalm 50 verses three to four says, Our God comes, He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire, around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. In Psalm 97, 1-3, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. 
clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes up before him and burns up his adversaries all around. And finally, Isaiah 30, 27 and 33. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord like a stream of sulfur kindles it. My goodness, Nikki, these scenes of judgment are all through the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And here Daniel is putting them in a place and time. It's amazing to see how it all connects. I know. I actually found myself teary last night looking at some of these connections, never realizing these are all talking about a similar thing and a similar time. It was interesting to me that as we look at this, this judgment scene, we look at God on his throne, and the books are open, and the court has convened, and even then, in this work of God, you have thousands upon thousands who are serving him, and myriads upon myriads who are standing before him. There is a a, a worshipfulness yes. about this. And that comes out in the Revelation 4 and 5 parallel passage. That's so cool. <laughs> yes. God is worthy of worship. And this is just a scene where he is judging those nations, those ravening beasts that we have just read about. He is going to judge those beasts. And that's what this scene is about. One other thing I found really interesting is that Moses says this in Deuteronomy 33, 1 and 2. And remember, Deuteronomy was Moses's restatement of the covenant and the law to the wilderness generation before they entered the land of Canaan, because they had not been alive at Sinai. So, he says this to them, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Now, Seir is another word for Sinai. It's so fascinating to me that when the old covenant was given, God manifested himself to Israel with all these symbols of judgment. Mm -hmm. And when he came to us and inaugurated the new covenant, he came as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, took our sin, took God's judgment, all of this wrath and fire and anger towards sin. He took from the Father in himself as he hung on the cross. It's a whole different covenant and manifested in a different way. And here we're seeing at the end of the times of the Gentiles, when those Gentile nations are ready for judgment, God is going to show that same anger and judgment against sin that he showed at Sinai, and it's going to be poured out on the nations and the people who did not believe. It may seem very disconnected, but this changes Christmas somehow. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? That he took this wrath, this judgment that we deserve into himself, came as a baby, and took took this into himself as a man so that we could be among those who stand and worship him. With those thousands and thousands. So then we see this phrase, the court sat, which always confused me because I had Ellen in my head. But when I don't think about what Ellen says, 
this somehow has context. Psalm 96, 11 to 13, for example, refers to a similar thing. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So, All through the Psalms, all through the Old Testament, there are images of God's judgment, His wrath against sin, His provision in a sacrifice for those who will believe. And now, Daniel is being given this astonishing view for us to know that the Gentile nations are going to run their course, and at the right time, the rock made without hands is going to strike those Gentile nations on the feet of their image. And this is what's going to happen. God is going to destroy those empires, those nations, in one moment, and the Messiah will be given a kingdom. It's interesting that this text doesn't tell us yet who's going to sit on the thrones that were set up. Right. They're just there. No one's on them that we know about at this point, and we get to find out. We do. (laughs) Now, there is a reference to thrones being set up. It's not exactly in the same perspective, but it's in Revelation 20 at the very beginning of the millennium, and it says, thrones were set up and those who were to judge were seated on them. And the context in Revelation 20 suggests that those are believers who believe with Christ, who inherit the kingdom with Him. But we will get to that later. (laughs) So, the books that are opened... These are not the investigative judgment books? No, I don't believe those exist. (laughs) I believe Jesus' blood has already taken care of that, and there's no record of our sin, and there's no carrying our sins out of heaven, and Satan never cleanses the sanctuary. Nothing is ever placed on Satan. He is not punished for our sin. And Nikki, I think that's one of the foundational things that Adventism taught us that just skewed everything. They taught us Satan was responsible for the sin of mankind. Mm -hmm. We are in this mess because of Satan. No, the Bible never says that. We are in this mess because of Adam. It was not Satan. And Satan is never blamed and never punished for our sin. It does say in Revelation 19 that the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. And that is also where the wicked unbelievers will be put. But no, he is not blamed for our sin. He's blamed for his own we are responsible for our sin. That changes everything somehow. So, when we're talking about biblical judgment and Adventism's view of judgment, we are dealing with Adventism's playground here because this is what sets Adventism apart in a big way. So big, in fact, that Christians are able to go, wait, that's not right. That was Walter Martin's big issue with Adventism. It was their view of the atonement and the judgment. So that's why this all looks so incredibly different to us now when we just read the words. Right. And it's why this passage had me a little afraid, to be honest. And yet, here we are, (laughs) right here, in context. This is an amazing and hopeful scene. None of it's a surprise, and we aren't waiting to find out if we're going to be dead or alive. Mm -mm. So the books are opened, and it's interesting to me that there is a reference to the books again, In the very last chapter of Daniel, in the first verse, 
and this is, we will talk more about this when we come to it, but I want to read this. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Remember that the angel is speaking to Daniel, the Jew in Babylon. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So contrary to the way Adventism taught us about the books, I was a little girl and I remember being taught in Sabbath school that there's a book of remembrance and then there's the book of good deeds and then there's the book of life. And, you know, it's like there's always a book and Jesus has gone through them and he's going to figure out, you know, what we've got recorded there. No, there's nothing like that here. The books in Daniel and in Revelation seem always to be connected with the idea that God knows those who are saved and those who aren't. And we know he knows that because he saves us when we trust him. This is not something he has to go through an investigative judgment to figure out. So it's not a surprise to God. And here the books are opened. This simply means that God is saying, I'm going to deal with the people who don't trust me or who do. Mm-hmm. And this isn't the great white throne judgment. This isn't the very end. There's still more to come as we see in this passage. But this is the end of the statue, the end of the four beasts, the end of the nations of the Gentiles. And that's another thing I didn't understand as an Adventist. You know, the times of the Gentiles. Yeah. This is this is a real thing. And this this prophecy explains the end of that. The first time I heard about the times of the Gentiles, it was very shortly after I had been saved, and I was told by so many of you guys, you have to read Romans, Nikki, go read (laughs) Romans. And so I got to Romans 11, and Paul is very clear to tell believers not to be arrogant against Israel. And he says in verse 25, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That passage is just loaded with God's faithfulness. It is incredible. But to come out of a group that believed we were the better Israel, it's also a very corrective text. And to see that there is a time of the Gentiles that will be filled up, Mm -hmm. and then God's not done with Israel was fascinating to me. I agree. In fact, Jesus himself said, and this passage here in Daniel helps me understand this better. Um, he says, this is Luke 21, 23, and 24. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's the Lord Jesus. (laughs) And now we look at this passage in Daniel and it's like, yeah, Jesus must have known Daniel. (laughs) 
So then we move into verse 11, where Daniel says, again, then I kept looking. (laughs) So he's going to see something new. Now, these last two verses, he's been seeing what's going on in heaven, in the throne room where the Ancient of Days is seated, opening the books, thousands upon thousands, myriads upon myriads are there with him. And now he's looking back at the earth, and this is what's going on on earth while this judgment scene is being set up in heaven. And he says, I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And remember that horrible fourth beast with the iron teeth and the really mysterious appearance and aggression? That beast had a little horn that came up at the very end that uprooted three of the other little horns on that beast's head, and that little horn started saying great boasts, and it had the eyes of a man. So that's what Daniel's hearing here. I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Well, Nikki, (laughs) this just didn't fit my Adventist paradigm at all. Because, you know, the investigative judgment is supposed to be in here somewhere, but this very clearly says that God is about to cast that fourth beast, that last part of the image, if you will, into the fire. That's what happens when that rock comes down and strikes the toes. But now we learn what really goes on. That beast is going to be cast into the fire. And you say, what fire? <laughs> well, listen to Revelation 19, 17 to 21. It was very amazing to me to be studying this and seeing the comparative text and realizing this is describing what's happening in Revelation 19 and 20. Here's what Revelation 19, 17 to 21 says. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from his mouth, of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." So, we see here that the beast is being thrown into the fire, and this is the great lake of fire. And that will be further identified as we go on in Revelation into Revelation 20. But that's what this is describing. And this is before the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, is presented to take the kingdom. This is right on the edge of the kingdom being set up on the earth. This is the rock crushing the statue. And this is what happens like inside that rock as the statue is destroyed. (laughs) Then comes verse 12, which has a little bit of confusion in it. But let's see if we can talk through this because I think it actually makes sense now. And it didn't used to make sense to me. So we'll try. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now, 
you ask, how can that be? If the statue is all destroyed at the same time, and like it said in Daniel 2, that rock hits the toes, the whole thing is crashed to the ground and disseminated into dust that's blown away, how can anything remain? Well, remember, those empires are made up of people. And what we are going to learn in Daniel 9 and 10, as we come to it, that there are demonic powers, princes, Daniel calls them, of these various nations. The prince of Persia, he will mention, for example. These are princes that are not people. They appear to be demonic angels, and we'll talk about that more as we get to them. He makes it fairly clear in Daniel 10. So, the nature of these kingdoms is determined. These beastly, marauding, cruel, consuming beasts that take everything in their paths, these characteristics are determined by the spiritual power behind them, if you will. And what I see this saying is, their dominion is taken away. That spiritual power that gave them the energy and the strength and the power and the cruelty and the evil to do what they did, that's taken away. They're destroyed. But the people themselves, those people in those empires, they're still there. There's still nations on the earth, even though that cruel marauding thing is gone. And we're going to learn as we move on in this little passage and also in Revelation, that Jesus reigns over the nations when he takes the throne. So, there have to be nations left on the earth, but they're not going to be those cruel, marauding, dominating nations that take everything in their paths. They've been denatured. So, the beasts are kingdoms, not kings. Right. And the nations are left on the earth. Yes. And we do learn in Revelation, as I read, that that the man on the horse with the sword coming out of his mouth, which we know is the Lord Jesus. And we know that many of those people will be killed in this time, in this judgment, but the nations are still there. There are still people in them. And the Lord Jesus is going to reign over the nations. So then we come to verse 13, and here is where we see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. What do you know about that, Nikki? Well, anytime you talk about the clouds... It, it reminds me of Christ ascending in the clouds and that he will return in the clouds. But there's also the pattern in scripture of the cloud representing God's glory. He led Israel through the desert with a cloud during the day. He came to the tent of meeting as a cloud before yeah. Israel when he would come to to punish them for yeah. their grumbling. And so it, it's a very consistent use. He had clouds at Sinai. And he was taken up into the clouds Mm -hmm. from the Mount of Olives in Acts 1. So here we see coming in the clouds, one like a son of man. And he's coming and he is presented to the Ancient of Days. Now, this is the only reference to the Messiah as the Son of Man in the Old Testament. And the Lord Jesus himself applied it to himself. And it was so moving to me when I realized this is the passage he was referring to when he was standing right before his crucifixion, when he was being tried by the Sanhedrin, shamed, scorned, beaten. And the high priest stands up in the midst of them and says to Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Right there, Jesus identified himself as this being in Daniel 7. And the high priest knew exactly what he was saying. And that's why he tore his robes and the guards spit on him and hit him and mocked him. Jesus' owning this prophecy identified himself to the people who were about to sentence him to death. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom. That's the fifth kingdom. So that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. So there we see we still have all the nations. That's right. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It, it reminds me of some of the things that Nebuchadnezzar said yeah, to the people after Daniel interpreted his dream. And he went out to pasture for a while <laughs> and came back knowing who God was. You know, this is also prophesied in other prophets. Uh, Micah 4, 6 to 7 says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So, it was prophesied in various times and places by various prophets that the Lord Jesus would reign on earth over the people and over the nation of Israel. And, you know, I am more and more annoyed that Adventism has taken their investigative judgment, which has no biblical basis. They have taken this passage in Daniel and they have arbitrarily placed it in the middle of this judgment scene. There's nothing to support that. And yet, the book Seventh-day Adventists believe in their chapter on the judgment in heaven, they stick the investigative judgment in there, and then they quote Daniel 7 to say, see, 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 there's a judgment, there's books opened, and here it is. That is eisegesis at its worst, not exegesis. <laughs> not even good no. eisegesis. <laughs> no. So, we come to the end of this passage and see Daniel has seen the Almighty, Ancient of Days, about to judge the Gentile nations and bring an end to the times of the Gentiles. He has seen Jesus the Messiah being presented to the Father and given a kingdom and glory and dominion, an everlasting kingdom. This is parallel with what we read in Revelation 19 and 20, and it's very important, and I just have to emphasize this, what we see in both this vision in Daniel 7 with the beasts and the kingdom and the judgment and Daniel 2 with the image is that the kingdom of Christ is not set up during the times of the Gentiles. Worse, it's set up at the end of the times of the Gentiles. And I'm just saying that because some people believe that the kingdom of Christ is corresponding to the times of the Gentiles, but just Using our hermeneutic and reading the words, it's very clear that it's at the end of the kingdoms of the Gentiles. You know, another view that people will bring to Revelation and to Daniel is that these are events that have already happened, that these happen in the past. But the fact that we have peoples, nations, populations, all languages in this vision shows that this is, this is including New Testament saints. Right. This is not just something that happened years and years ago. No. Now, I just want to end by saying 
We can't know for certain exactly when and how all of this will look and happen. But what we can know is that everything God tells us will happen. And as it happens, we'll be able to look at these prophecies and go, oh yes, that's what he meant. And the more time passes, we go from Daniel and then we look forward to Revelation and we see there's more of the same thing, but with more detail. When we use the hermeneutic that says the words mean what the words say, context is everything, we use the normal rules of grammar and vocabulary, we can see that there are consistent patterns in Scripture and they inform the whole of the book. But for now, as we look at this, And next week, we're going to see the interpretation given to Daniel of this vision. For now, we just need to know this. If we are believers, we do not need to fear judgment. When we trust Jesus, the judgment for our sin has already been taken care of because Jesus took that judgment. It happened in his body, and he took the wrath of God as he hung on the cross. He was killed for our sins. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose from death. The curse of sin was shattered. And when we believe Him and trust Him, we are born again, and the Father Himself transfers us at that moment out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We are transferred from death to life. And now we can read Daniel and see these verses which describe God's judgment against the evil powers of the world, and we don't have to fear because we know the Son. We know the one like the Son of Man who's presented to the Ancient of Days. We trust Him, and our lives are hidden with Him in God. And if you haven't trusted Jesus, trust Him now. Join us next week as we look at verses 15 to 28, the vision interpreted. And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.